my fellow Americans and all those listening overseas. Welcome back to Visiting the Presidents. I am your host, Joe Fakash, and today we will be visiting James Knox Polk, the 11th president of the United States, and his birthplace near Pineville in Mecklenburg County, North Carolina. I did want to share some news with you that I have taken some feedback from various listeners who have been asking, you know, what should I be reading about each of these presidents? Or I'm really interested in this particular part. And so on each of the episode pages on my website at visitingthepresidents.com, at the bottom, there will be three recommended sources for those individual presidents. Now, when you click on the link, it will go to the Amazon page. You, of course, do not have to go through Amazon. But if you do, there is a small commission that will be sent back to me. And I'm using any of those funds received through the affiliate link to help support the page and the hosting cost. I have been really enjoying this so far. I don't imagine that it's going to be too cumbersome, but any little bit can help. And so if you click on that, Anything that you purchase after having clicked on the link, um, I also get the commission from, which would be awesome. So uh, just something that you can be aware of. And uh, I am going to be picking some of the sources that I have found and am interested in or have used. And I welcome you to definitely look at them. So you can find those recommended sources two different ways. Like I said, by clicking on the episode page for each individual episode, or there will be at the top a recommended reading page. And if you go to that, there will be all of the sources listed in chronological order as we go through the president. So something for you to be checking out. And a big shout out to one of my closest friends, Jim Hyman, who was very helpful in helping me set up the affiliate link and all of the particulars that went into that. So thank you so much, Jim. Now, I know some of you might be getting a little tired of this mid-Atlantic love affair that we've been having with our first several episodes, and I can't exactly promise that next week's going to get any better when we visit Zachary Taylor's birthplace in Montebello, Virginia. But I can tell you that after that, we will be cooling it with the southern states for quite some time. Some of that, of course, is going to be owed to the fact that as the slavery tensions heat up in the country. The Democratic Party is going to start nominating the Democrats from northern states. So we'll talk about Franklin Pierce and James Buchanan in New Hampshire and Pennsylvania, respectively. And then after the war, the party does the exact same thing, where they'll be nominating as their presidential candidates men from New York and New Jersey. So it's going to be quite some time before we get back into the South. We, of course, will visit Andrew Johnson, a fellow North Carolinian who becomes a Tennessean, but he is going to succeed into that office after the death of Abraham Lincoln. And so that is going to you know, be a little bit of an asterisk beside that. It won't be again until we get to Woodrow Wilson, who is a final Virginian, the 28th president. 
And then when we start talking about the Texas presidents, Dwight Eisenhower and Lyndon Johnson, and then you have Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton from Georgia and Arkansas, respectively. So we will be moving, get a diversity of different states uh, that you'll start seeing here. And you might get tired of some of those states too. I can tell you as an Ohioan, we take very seriously our title is a cradle of the presidency and that we compete with Virginia, but you might get a little tired of my Buckeye state. Now, James Knox Polk will be born on November the 2nd of 1795, and he will be named for his maternal grandfather, James Knox. The Polks are going to be like the other Scots-Irish that we talked about in the seventh episode on Andrew Jackson, and Pineville is not going to be too far away from the Waxhaws that we discussed in that episode. The Polks would have arrived in North Carolina in the 1720s. Both of James's grandfathers served in the Revolution as militia captains, and Samuel Polk is going to be a very industrious, hardworking man who is going to seek his fortune in the planter class, something that we've been discussing with a lot of our Virginia presidents as well and how their families make money, right? Uh, he's also going to be a surveyor, and if that rings bells, it should. He is going to move his family in 1806 to the middle of Tennessee where he's going to be instrumental in helping to found the now city of Columbia, where even today you can visit the Polk family home, uh, the only surviving home of the Polk family. And we'll be discussing that in season two. When he moves there, Samuel is going to own a very large thousand acre plantation and is going to be responsible for over 50 slaves and that is going to definitely put James and his family in the same class as what we've been talking about with a lot of our Virginia presidents and their upbringing, where it, it does color the way that they view the country and you know that their wealth is dependent on, in their minds, slavery. And so they become very kind of wed to this notion. Now, Samuel is going to become friends with Andrew Jackson, who is still making his way in the Tennessee society. And he is also going to be a Carolina transplant. So they would have had that in common. This becomes extremely advantageous for young James as he starts to make his way in a political career. And he even adopts the nickname Young Hickory. Uh, if you remember, that was Andrew's nickname was Old Hickory. James is going to call himself Young Hickory. And they're similarities in terms of their rise to prominence is going to be something that he uses to great effect. James's mother was Jane Knox. And interestingly, she and Samuel were married in a dual wedding with Samuel's brother and his bride. Within a year, they get pregnant and young James is going to be the oldest then of 10 children. Now, what we see in the dynamic between Jane and Samuel is going to be this kind of battle for the soul of James, where they both are going to be imprinting their own desires on James. And Jane wants him to become a minister. And if that sounds familiar, we've heard that before. And instead, James is going to really kind of um, 
rebel against that and want to go into law. And so that's seen as somewhat of a defiance. But his father's even more harsh on him. He is going to try to get him several different jobs, and James just does not come through. And so in one instance, he's going to set him up uh, with this kind of hardworking job in the field, and he's just a sickly young boy, and so that's not going to work. So he gets him another job working in a kind of a general store, and James just does not do a good job selling stuff. And so he gets fired from that job. And so when James becomes a good student, both parents feel like, okay, fine. He's not going to necessarily be what we desired or had hoped for, but he's at least going to be hardworking. And so um, strangely enough, they find uh, you know, that his academic career is going to be a positive pursuit. Today, I think it would kind of be the, the reverse for a lot of people. You know, you'd, you'd want your son or daughter to be really good in school. And instead for the Polks, it's going to be, well, I guess he can't figure it out anywhere else. So maybe this will work. Um, Like I said, James is going to be the oldest of 10 children, 10, um, including four sisters. He has five brothers, and most of them stay around in Colombia for their entire life. Now, three of his brothers are going to, strangely enough, die in their 20s from alcoholism, tuberculosis, and one of them, we we don't know the exact um, cause of death. His sister Ophelia's husband is going to be Dr. John Hayes, who will eventually serve as Polk's personal physician. And then we have William, who's going to be um, put in a position in the kingdom of the two Sicilies, uh, which would have been kind of an ambassadorial position. Now, one of the other really kind of interesting aspects of James Polk's family life is going to be the fact that his mother is going to actually survive James by three years, the first time that we have this in history. So when I mentioned that his brothers die in their 20s, it seems you know really brief, but James doesn't outlive them by too much. He'll be our youngest president to die in terms of, you know, he leaves office and he'll be dead within three months. And his mother will actually outlive him, sadly enough. Now, one thing all of the books that I've read about James Polk mention is that he has a very big stubborn streak, and that is something he definitely would have picked up from his father. Uh, I have two stories that can kind of (laughs) speak to that. The first is that when it was time for James to be baptized, his mother is a very religious woman and was very determined that he would be baptized into the Presbyterian church. But when they take young James the minister is going to say, well, both of the parents, in order to baptize their child, have to profess their faith as Presbyterians. And Samuel wouldn't budge at all. And they just kind of had this stare down, and then it escalates into a bit of a shouting match. And they finally leave without getting their son baptized. James will finally be baptized on his deathbed. And that will kind of finally bring uh, Jane some comfort that her son finally got baptized. The other interesting story about Samuel is that he is going to uh, be James's first client when he becomes a lawyer down the road. Uh, He gets into trouble uh, as a breach of peace, and he ends up getting fined a dollar, but that'll be the first client for the young lawyer, uh, James Polk. Now, I usually talk about the religious views of our 
different precedents. And so this is a good time to mention that when he does get baptized, James is going to again experience this bit of defiance and he does not get baptized as a Presbyterian, but baptized as a Methodist. And he will owe a lot of that to a camp meeting that he views as kind of reinvigorating his faith, but would have proven a bit of a disappointment to his mother, who, as I said, is going to be a very big advocate for the Presbyterian church. James's childhood is going to be shaped by the family's move to Tennessee. When he's 10 years old, he helps the family in the move. He's going to be very instrumental in that. And he is going to be battling, you know, his own body when it comes to being able to conduct himself. He's a very sickly young boy in into manhood and becomes very exhausted from, you know, the rough and tumble sports that would have been favored by kids growing up in the area. When he does go with his father on surveying trip, he has to stay close to the camp and does a lot of the cooking and tending to the horses. One of the stories that comes up a lot in Polk literature is going to be about him having really bad gallstones when he's a young boy. And he finally they get so bad when he's about 16, they send him to Danville, Kentucky to have them removed. And they put him on this bare table and they give him only some liquor <laughs> to dull the pain of having these gallstones removed. You know, they didn't have the anesthetics or antiseptics to deal with it. And after that, he's a little bit better, but he is still going to be very sickly. And this leads to Samuel believing that. James is too much like his mother. <laughs> and, you know, that would have certainly been cause for some more of this rancor. Now, throughout his life, he is going to be an introvert. And I know we've had throughout some of our uh, previous, you know, we, where we've been talking about the personality traits of our different presidents. James would have definitely been an INTJ on the Myers-Briggs where he is going to be very determined, very um, independent, very focused. Those are going to be the characteristics that you hear all of the time with young James and as president. But this is also going to be this other side of the coin where he is definitely going to be arrogant and very combative. He's going to be dismissive of anybody with emotions, and he's going to not make friends very easily. He has a few close friends, but that is going to be um, very limited. He is going to take from his mother this kind of focus on duty, and it's going to make him really singularly focused on any political ambitions. And Today, of course, we recognize that he doesn't live too long past his presidency. He only serves the one term, and he dies three months after, making him, you know, certainly one of our most hardworking. You know, he he literally kind of works himself to death. Um, but that is also going to make it so that he doesn't really have a lot of other things to speak of. Now, let me read you from a couple different contemporaries when. John Quincy Adams, the president uh, of the United States, meets young James Polk as a young representative. He describes Polk as having, quote, no wit, no literature, no elegance of language, no pathos, no felicitous impromptus, nothing that can constitute an orator, but confidence, fluency, and labor. Everybody 
always describes him as being very hardworking and fastidious. But there's also this mischievous quality where you also read about him hoarding information from his contemporaries. Um, when he has a close friend, Archibald Yell, who they write these long letters back and forth, his friend at one point says, I'm not able to even conjecture how your feelings are after your long letters. Basically, I can read what you're saying, but I don't even know if you actually believe that or, or think that. In May of 1838, right before he's going to uh, make his big break into national politics, he's going to have a phrenologist who is going to, and that would have been very popular at the time, but he's going to be feeling his skull. And he's going to say that his cranium suggests a man who, quote, thinks well of himself, often asks advice, and does just as he pleases, is one of the firmest of men, slow in committing himself, but once committed does all in his power to carry through his measures has many acquaintances, but few bosom friends. And he says that he would have been a great actor, that he did a very good job of telling people what he thought that they wanted to hear and really kind of, again, keeping his own personal views at bay. We would have found him today to be a very kind of uh, shrewd, but also, to my mind, kind of terrifying politician. But at that time, those would have been qualities that people kind of looked for in these politicians now becoming our national leaders. One final um, historian, Bernard DeVoto, says, Polk's mind was rigid, narrow, obstinate, and far from first rate. But if his mind was narrow, it was also powerful, and he had guts. If he was orthodox, his integrity was absolute, and he could not be scared manipulated, or brought to heel. No one bluffed him. No one moved him with direct or oblique pressure. He knew how to get things done, which is the first necessity of government, and he knew what he wanted done, which is the second. Making him, as I said, when he becomes president, it's going to make him a real dynamo in the office, but it also leaves very little for his own personal life and uh, we see that definitely come to bear, and we'll we'll discuss that in certainly uh, future seasons. So you have that to look forward to the very limited um, out exterior life of James Polk. Now, interestingly, Polk is going to be like some of the presidents we'll be talking about in uh, future weeks. People like Abraham Lincoln and Andrew Johnson, who has very informal education and instead is going to really be self-made. We in the United States, of course, love this notion of the self-made man. And you really need to look no further than people like Polk, who's going to have his mother as his instructor. And of course, his father has wealth. So those are two big advantages. Um, but it is also going to be a far cry from some of those presidents we talked about in the opening weeks, where he isn't going to be going to these formal schools. He's not going to have private tutors. In 1813, he will finally enroll at a Presbyterian school in Columbia, and his curriculum is going to mainly be in the classics. He's going to be very hardworking, and so then is going to be sent to a more demanding school in Murfreesboro to study under Samuel Black, where he's going to work at improving his Latin and Greek, alongside mathematics, science, and philosophy, 
and actually becomes one of the best math students. So uh, certainly proving his father <laughs> wrong, James is going to enroll at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Shout out to my friends, Jamie Wilson and Stephanie Gaskill, both Tar Heel alums. At that time, the Chapel Hill campus only had about 80 students. And again, Samuel, James's father, had an in and that was one of the main reasons that James was able to go to his birth state for his college education. He loves public speaking and debate, and he ends up being elected as president of the Dialectic Society there. At one point, he is even going to have as one of his positions that no foreigners should be able to uh, hold public office. So we definitely see where the free soil movement would have been kind of getting inside his head. He graduates with honors in 1818, giving the Latin welcoming address at the commencement. And again, there is going to be this pattern where he works so hard, but then becomes physically exhausted and won't be able to come home from college for several months. Now, as I said before, he is going to decide to pursue law, and so he's going to study under Felix Grundy in Nashville, who will later serve as attorney general under Martin Van Buren. That same year, he is going to become clerk of the state senate, and keep in mind he's just 24 years old, and he's going to be in charge of helping to keep up the flow of legislative paperwork He then gets admitted to the bar that same year. James is going to be very politically ambitious. And so in 1823, he will be a candidate for the Tennessee House of Representatives. And because of his oratorical flourish, he gets a well-known reputation for being a great speaker and even earns the nickname as Napoleon on the Stump. He wins the office and immediately is going to kind of turn on his former mentor, Felix Grundy, and instead start to ally himself with Andrew Jackson. In 1824, when there was a position for senator from Tennessee, James is going to place Andrew Jackson's name in uh, contention, earning himself some loyalty from Jackson and Jackson's supporters. And tying himself to Old Hickory is certainly going to prove a successful move for young James. Just two years later, he will be a candidate for the U.S. House of Representatives and wins office at just 30 years of age, becoming one of our youngest representatives. And immediately his wife can tell that this is starting to become a bad pattern where he becomes very um, thrown into these Uh, goals that he sets for himself, but to his own physical and mental detriment, a pattern that we will see carry on throughout the rest of his life, frankly. He will serve in the House of Representatives for uh, all the way through 1839 and will even be elected Speaker of the House, the only president to be Speaker of the House. Now, when he shows up in Washington, remember that he is going to win office at the time that Andrew Jackson will not. He will have the corrupt bargain of 1824. And so James, who has allied himself with Jackson, is going to be a bit of fish out of water. But that does not stop our friend James Polk. Instead, he is going to really try to be a thorn in the side of anything that John Quincy Adams is going to attempt to accomplish in his one term as president. One of the first moves that young Congressman Polk makes is to give a speech 
denouncing the Electoral College. That's how opposed to the corrupt bargain and how much of a lackey Polk was willing to do. And the rest of the time that he was in the House and Adams was president, he did everything he could to oppose John Quincy Adams as president and stayed in close contact with Andrew Jackson. So when Jackson is elected in 1828, now that is going to prove to be a very strong partnership. And he does pretty much everything that he's being accused of, carrying water for the Jackson and then Van Buren presidencies. Anything that Jackson didn't like, Polk would see as much as he could, that it would be defeated in Congress, including this proposal to build a road that would have gone from Buffalo, New York to New Orleans, which would have been quite the mammoth achievement at that time. Um, And then Polk is also going to be steadfast in helping to defeat the bank, the national bank that Jackson was so opposed to. So Polk is going to be first the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, and there is going to hold a lot of leverage and then transition that into becoming Speaker of the House. Now, when the economic downturn in 1837 happens, that is going to hurt Polk's uh, speakership. And so Polk is going to announce that he'll step down from being Speaker of the House and run for governor of Tennessee. So to Jane's you know, certainly observations that he is working himself very hard. His response isn't going to be to slow down. It's just going to be to change titles. And as a little bit of a spoiler, he's going to transition then from governor to president uh, and then be dead. And she'll live out the rest of her life, some 40 years um, by herself. So there is some kind of prophecy to what she's warning about. So let's turn our attention now to the birthplace, and we'll come back to his political career when we get to season two. But at his birthplace, we know that the home was likely built by Samuel Polk, and that the property was given to him and his wife on their wedding uh, in an area that would have been settled by Samuel's father and uncle. The house was two stories with a large loft upstairs, and then rooms and a bit of a breezeway below, which sounds charming, frankly. Uh, He's going to add to the land using four slaves to grow cotton. And that's going to then be the uh, where he gets some of the finances to be able to move to Tennessee. And when you have 10 children, you're going to want a bigger home. And so that's going to be part of it as well. He does sell that property and the house is going to change hands multiple times over the 1800s and even is moved across the property from place to place before finally being used as a stable and barn and then deteriorating completely. John Miller is going to purchase the property lot in 1903 and has the house torn down in the 1920s and will own the land until 1964, but apparently does not have any of the appreciation for a presidential birthplace that we would hopefully have today. In 1904, the Daughters of the American Revolution are going to put up a large 15-foot stone pyramid with the marker that reads, Here stood the house in which was born November 2nd, 1795, James K. Polk, President of the United States, 1845 to 1849. At that dedication ceremony, the speakers are going to give these very florid remarks with statements like, here upon this spot was born one of the great men of earth. He came of a great race of people. They were diamonds unpolished, but diamonds of the first water. And 
keep in mind that when we're talking about this era, that it would have been very important to groups like the Daughters of the American Revolution and speaking about a Southern-born president to make all of these allusions to his race and allusions to his greatness. It would have been very important for them to keep speaking those things until everybody kind of got on board with them. And so um, you definitely see them hard at work here. In 1936, the state of North Carolina, you know, they certainly had the controversy of uh, Andrew Jackson. And then I don't know that they were necessarily interested in claiming Andrew Johnson, but Polk was somebody that they could kind of come to an agreement on. And so they do put up a highway marker um, as part of this larger program. And one of the first that they put up is going to be for James Polk. They replace it 20 years later. And then again in 1990 with the one that you can find today. And I'll talk about that in a minute. In the 1950s, an architect named James Stenhouse is going to try to buy the property so that he's able to preserve it. And finally, in 1963, the Mecklenburg County Historical Association and the State Department of Archives and History is going to try to get allocations from the state legislature so that they can purchase the site. They are going to then get permission from the Daughters of the American Revolution to move that pyramid memorial so that they could build a reproduction house on the site. And again, that would have been very much in line with what we've seen in previous episodes. They use materials from a cabin that would have been built in that time period. So trying to be kind of historically accurate. And then they use descriptions from Polk's younger brother, and then a speech from the 1840s. The reproduction house is going to be finished in 1868 and is going to be dedicated by the governor and visited by First Lady, Lady Bird Johnson. Now today when you go to visit, it is now the President James K. Polk State Historic Site, and North Carolina has done a very great job of trying to preserve this site. And so there in the state park, you will have a uh, tour of the replica cabin where they would have lived, the Polks would have lived, as well as the kitchen cabin. And they give a good piece of history about the two houses that were used to kind of build the approximate um, building, uh, the replica site. And then there's a kitchen, like I said, a kitchen cabin that would be next door. You could also see the pyramid that the Daughters of the American Revolution put together. And then they also make mention of a visit from George Washington when he visits the town in 1791. And so they do a very good job of trying to piece together all of this history. Now, when you go to visit, it's important, again, that you check the website uh, in order to get onto the grounds and get to see the birthplace cabin and the pyramid, as well as the museum that they have about Polk and his life. Um, It's important to make sure that you're checking out the website. Uh, The hours of operation are Tuesday through Saturday, 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. So that means it's closed on Sundays, Mondays, and most major holidays. There is no fee, which is awesome. Um, So make sure that you can um, take advantage of that. Now, if you do want to tour the cabin, it looks like it's $2 per adult and a dollar per child. But if you just wanted to take a picture on the outside, take a picture of the pyramid, you could do both of those really for free. The closest 
presidential site to this, like I said before, is Andrew Jackson's birthplace in the Waxhaws, about 25 miles away. And if you're trying to recreate the journey I took, um, certainly make sure that you uh, check that out and uh, can approximate that, that travel. Now, when I visited the Polk birthplace, it was the same day that I discussed in episode seven, where it was my sister's wedding in Wrightsville Beach, North Carolina. And so I was coming back across the state towards Charlotte, and I stopped at the Andrew Jackson birthplaces and then to Pineville, which is not too far outside of Charlotte. When I arrived, it was very late in the day, and they were about 40 minutes away from being able to close. So I had to kind of quickly go through the site, and I was able to peek in on the various outbuildings and briefly go through the museum. I would love to go back and and hope to in order to get to view the museum a bit more extensively. Uh, I was able to peek into the replica cabin. And again, keep in mind, this isn't the exact one, but you do get a sense for the birthplace and what it would have been like for, for James Polk. One of the things that really stuck with me from this is what they do a really great job of is really preserving the land. And so you get a sense of, even though Pineville now is a much larger town, of just how isolated, hard working you would have had to be to, to live there. And, you know, certainly they're probably going to have to address at some point the amount of slave labor that was going on on these grounds. Don't think that they're there yet in terms of really kind of getting into it, but um, that is definitely something that stuck out to me that, you know, most of Polk's life is going to be dominated by this issue that was kind of just taken as a given for somebody born in North Carolina and trying to uh, make better of himself, that it did take a lot of work. And it wasn't just on James's or Samuel's behalf. It was going to be done um, by uh, much more labor. And so that needs to be addressed on the ground as well. And I haven't visited since uh, it would have been October of twenty. 17. So hopefully that that will be something that they can kind of get into going forward. Uh, like I said, the only other Polk site that you can visit is in Columbia, Tennessee, the Polk house. And we'll get to that in season two. So that is something to look forward to. Uh, but certainly one of our less known presidents, even though he was, like I said before, a kind of a dynamo in the office. And in terms of being a one-term president. That's something that today that we, you know, kind of wax philosophically about, you know, what would it be like to have a candidate who uh, dedicates themselves to the office and isn't interested in setting themselves up for re-election, just focuses on that one term and does what they're able to do and then steps aside. Now, you wouldn't want them to die in the process to exhaust themselves so much, but it does give you a sense of just how kind of dedicated Polk was Now, the question you could ask is, to what end? And that's something that I can kind of leave you with. I did revisit the James Polk birthplace. And in this case, I got to spend a lot more time. On my way down to Carolina Beach, I wanted to stop first in Pineville. I was going to visit my friend Jim and his wife, Catherine. But I wanted to make sure that I had a tour for the birthplace cabins. I didn't get to go on a tour when I had gone before. And because it was the summer of COVID, you had to register ahead of time. I believe it was like maybe $2, I think kind of a nominal fee, but just to make sure that you did actually show up 
when I arrived at the birthplace, they have a small museum that you're able to go inside. One of the things that I found interesting that I really didn't know the first time around, you know, most of it is signage and uh, posters and that kind of thing. And a lot of kind of situating you in the time period rather than having a lot of Polk personal effects, most of which I think are mainly housed in Columbia, where Polk has his house that we'll talk about in season two. And that the birthplaces, you know, he would have left when he was pretty young. But there was a sign that read about the memorial that they put in place. And then they have a sign that says the house problem. And I'll read you from that. What did Polk's birthplace look like? The present reconstruction is a combination of historical research, study of similar buildings in the area, and old-fashioned guesswork. Over the years, there have been many concepts of Polk's home, some fanciful and some more accurate. The only person to see it and record his views in detail was Governor David Swain, who in 1849 described the house in letters. What you see today is based upon that description. Some people have questioned details of the reconstruction, such as the interior paneling, brick chimney, and lack of weatherboarding. Such issues are still being debated, and we welcome your opinions. Now, I myself don't have too many opinions on it, like I'm a... what I see is what I get kind of guy. (laughs) So it looked kind of appropriate for what I was used to. So after walking around there, they waited for us to be assembled. Shocker, I was the youngest person on this tour by several decades, and they took us to the two main cabins. Now, when we were walking towards them, they wanted to kind of reassure us about, you know, these are not the actual homes. These, And they gave the lay of the, you know, how they had repurpose some of the buildings around that area but wanted to give you a good idea of what it would have been like and also that the location might be different when we walked inside it was a very hot morning in north carolina in july shocker and you got a real sense of just how stifling these homes would have been probably keep you pretty warm in the winter but in the summer i don't know how you would have ventilation and they did show how they would keep like certain windows open to maybe have a little bit of a draft. It still would have been super hot. So they had the one cabin that would have been the home that James and his parents would have lived in and then take off later. But then the kitchen would have been in a completely separate building. One thing that immediately stood out to me is just how plain and sparse the interior was. There wasn't a whole lot of knickknacks or anything like that. And they said, We don't decorate it like this because we ran out of ideas, but because they really wouldn't have had too many items. You know, you really wanted to keep things pretty (laughs) spare. And so that definitely came across. I did, of course, make note of the bed. I don't think I've ever taken a tour where they haven't made the keep tight, don't let the bed bugs bite notion and just how lumpy it would have been. Certainly not a very kind of comfortable bedding, but. And it certainly stands out when you go to some of the other birthplaces and how it definitely gave you a good sense of just how uncomfortable things would have been and how much we kind of take for granted in terms of our own comfort when we sleep. But I certainly couldn't have done what James was doing on those lumpy mattresses. When you look at the photos on the website, you'll know how much of the interiors is all wood. You know, they were very utilitarian, and so they did have kind of a built-in bookshelf or um, cabinet that you'll note, and then 
the all of the furniture, all of the furnishings are going to be wooden. So I did enjoy getting to go inside and getting to take in you know, what this would have looked like. Again, a lot of it is used for your imagination to, you know, approximate what these sites look like. But I really did value getting to go inside and kind of take my time on this trip. When we return next week, we will be getting into another president who dies kind of unexpectedly out of nowhere, and that's Zachary Taylor, yet another of our lesser-known presidents, and our final Virginian until we talk about Woodrow Wilson way later in the season. But Zachary Taylor is going to be a very interesting character for us, and we will discuss him and his birthplace in Montebello, Virginia. Remember to be checking out the podcast website at visitingthepresidents.com, where you can find photographs of my trips, other images, and links to other readings and visitor information. For this episode, my sources were Doug Weed's The Raising of a President, William D. Gregorio's Complete Book of U.S. Presidents, and Louis Picone's Where the Presidents Were Born. I have added a PayPal link on the episode page on visitingthepresidents.com, as well as the episode page. Any monies received will be used for future trips, as well as the hosting fees for the website and for the podcast. Remember, you can also help support Visiting the Presidents by liking and subscribing on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you get this podcast, as well as being a fan of the social media sites. I am on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Visiting the Presidents. And remember to be checking out the website at visitingthepresidents.com and subscribing there as well. Now let's get in our cars and go to visit the presidents. See ya.